Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 366. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 366 you're listening to. My guest today is Perry Lanehouse, producer, engineer, and owner of Point Break Sound Recording Studio in Stockholm, Sweden. Perry is somebody I've been following on LinkedIn for some time and recently made a connection with him and asked him to come on the show, and he graciously accepted my offer. So very excited to have him on. Perry Lanehouse here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to give you yet another Dolby Atmos update. Those of you that listen to the show all the time are saying to yourself, wait, another update? Didn't you like get set up already? Haven't you been mixing? And didn't you buy all this stuff and install it? And the short answer is no, I haven't. And the reason is, is because I'm continuing to stick to my plan, which I told you about at the beginning was no charging of credit cards, no blowing the bank account out and selling stuff that I'm not using to pay for the stuff that I need to do this. Let's just do a recap. What have I done? I updated the electrical in the studio. I updated the aesthetics of the room. So there's this reclaimed wood on the wall. I got some new speakers, sold the old speakers. I got a new LCR set. And for the newbies out there that's left, center, right, of PMC Result 6s on the recommendation of former WCA guest Steve Jenowick. So here's what remains. I need to get a controller to control all the speakers. And that is the newest update, actually. I ordered that yesterday. And I talked to the folks over at Grace Design because I'm a fan and a friend of theirs and said, here's what I need. And they helped me figure out how that was going to work. So I got the Grace M908 surround controller uh, for Atmos, and that's going to have a Dante card in it. It's going to have an A to D card in it, uh, which will support the phono preamp, which of course will support the turntable that I'll plug into it because I have a turntable and I need to plug that in. So you need an A to D to do that. You need a phono preamp. I figured, hey, if I'm ordering this thing now, I might as well order it with a preamp built in. That's the basics of it. If you want to check out the M908, you can uh, Google that or I'll put a link in the show notes to it. And that will replace the stereo M905 that I have, which I've had for years and bought used on eBay. And I got to say, it's like one of the best things I've ever purchased. It is so solid and sounds so good that I thought, well, if I'm going to do this outmost thing, I'm going to need a new controller and I'm I'm damn well going to get an M908 to do it because that is... That's just how I roll, you know. I like I like Grace and what they do. What remains after that, once that gets in, obviously I'm going to sell the M905. So at some point in the future, you know, or even now, you need to check out my shop on reverb.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to that so you can check out any gear I'm selling and ask yourself if you want to buy it. I ship quickly and I'm and I've got a 5-star rating on there, so hopefully that'll help help uh, give me some credibility there. Uh, But what remains is once the controller comes in, I need to get the rest of the speakers, which is going to be eight speakers. It's going to be the left, the left and right sides, the left and right back, and then the four that go on the ceiling. And then obviously a sub or LFE that I'm going to order in January or the beginning of February from PMC. Those are going to be PMC CI thirties for the surrounds. And I haven't quite made up my mind on the sub. If I'm going to go with a PMC sub, or which that could be a little on the pricey side, but but it would sound good. I might also go with something less expensive and something a little more working class audio price-wise, you know, something just like middle of the road that is going to do the job and uh, not break the bank. Well, that's the plan there. And then um, in February, I'm going to plan on going down to Los Angeles and I'm going to hang out with uh, with Steve Genowick again. And uh and hopefully hang out with uh, Dave Way and Brad Brad Wood, all former WCA guests, so I can pick their brains and see in person how they are working, see their workflow, talk about 
you know, how much to charge for mixes and just kind of do a fact finding trip because I think that that that's going to be important. So that's going to happen. And I'm very much looking forward to that. I, I can't wait to, to go and talk shop and dive into this topic. And then when I get back, I'm hoping to hit the ground running and uh, be mixing for my clients, for future clients, for new clients, for whoever. And we'll just see how that goes. So if you have any questions about the whole Dolby Atmos thing and you want to chat, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn or you can always send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. I know it's a it's kind of a scary topic for some of you and some of you are thinking well you know i don't have the money to do that or i you know i i can't afford the you know those speakers or whatever it is there is a way to do this where you're not totally breaking the bank now you are going to have to spend some money in some key areas but i figured out a way to do this and through talking with a lot of people about it i think i'm i'm while i am still spending some money here i'm not going going batshit crazy on the money so if you would like some advice on that i'm ha happy to you know give you my two cents you can go with different speakers i really like the grace and i think that's where people need to to spend some money there and for those of you that are asking like how's that going to work i'm going to go dante uh dante virtual sound card out of my computer into the grace so pro tools speaks to the dolby renderer the Dolby renderer will then over Dante see the speakers or see the see the grace as its um, interface. And that's how I'm going to do all the do all the Dolby Atmos curve stuff that you need to do, the bass management, as well as the speaker delays, because there's there's some amount of delay that you have to do on the speakers to make it all work in a small room like this. Maybe at some point when I finish up, maybe I could do like a, I could get a, I could recruit a few of you for a call and we could, I could talk you through what I've done and answer the questions as best I can. No promises of when that would be, but that's a possibility because uh, I'm happy to make myself available to the community to help everybody out in getting set up with this. So, but that's it. I've talked too long and that is my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link. 
book me in for an hour on a Zoom call and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we could sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Perry Lanehouse here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Perry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're uh, speaking to us from Stockholm, Sweden. Correct. All the way in uh, very dark and uh, pretty cold Stockholm. Yeah. You're a few hours ahead of me. It's 1030 here. What's it? 730 there? Yeah, about 730. But it, it gets dark around 330. It's pretty much night at that point. I had to get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's give the audience the the bigger picture here. So what is it that you're doing today and where is it that you're doing it at? Tell us about your studio. Tell us about what your day-to-day audio life is like today. Sure. I have a studio close to downtown Stockholm and it's called Point Break Sound. It is a part of a studio, a larger studio complex. And I have a control room with access to, to a nice live room. And what I do on a day-to-day basis is mostly mixing. I do some tracking, some mastering, and a lot of writing as well. That's right, because you also are in a band called the Travoltas. Correct, yeah, for very long time and I started writing with other artists as well and and producing so I'm always doing something there's always something to do in the studio yeah one thing that caught my attention on your website was is that before you were there in Stockholm with Point Break you actually were in Boston Massachusetts for 10 years yeah for about 10 years I did a lot of video work there as well I worked for a marketing company called Brafton And uh, we had a great time in Boston. My wife and I moved there in, uh, I think it was 2009. And I worked on and off in audio. I had my place there, mostly at home. Did a lot of mixing. And again, the writing never stopped, of course. And uh, in 2019, my wife got an opportunity to work for the university here in Stockholm. And we thought, hey, let's give it a shot. Let's, Let's try it. Let's take on this adventure and for me, it, it was an opportunity to expand my audio work and, and have a physical place where I can also track. And then COVID hit. <laughs> <laughs> so less tracking. But yeah, the, the 10 years in Boston were pretty awesome. I love that city. And now let's go back just a bit, just to fill in all the gaps. Where did you grow up? So I was I was born in Germany, and my, my dad was in the Air Force, and he was stationed there. He was in the Dutch Air Force. And when I was a baby, we moved back to Holland, where I grew up. I'm originally from Holland, from the Netherlands, from the south of Holland, a small town. Grew up there, went to college there, and learned how to play drums. Uh, starting age seven, always been involved with music. And uh, throughout my high school year, started playing in bands college years, started playing in bands. And then by the time I graduated, it was time to, you know, society expects that you get a job and, and do your do your duty. But by that time, luckily, my band was doing pretty well. So my passion became my work and I was really invested in that. And it was a struggle, but I was very happy to do the sacrifice because it was everything I ever dreamed of. So I uh, really wanted to pursue that. And when you say the band was doing well, tell me about that. Well, you have to see that in perspective because the band is a punk rock band. We are an underground punk rock band. So doing well is you get by. Right. That is doing well. And that was for a long time enough for us as long as we could tour and play and make our records and Every record, we, we would do a little bit better. 
and we would play national shows and then we would do a European tour or a US tour or a tour in Japan. So there was always some progress. And that was just a, a great time and something in that period, I also got to learn uh, how to record and I really got in touch with studio life as well and started really uh, diving into that, writing my own material, recording my own material and gradually get caught by that recording bug. And this is the Travoltas you're speaking of? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a major part of your life, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I if I look back, and I mean, we started in 1990, and before that, I was I was in bands too, but that was just local stuff. But we've been around for a while. We kind of split up around 2006. That's when I moved to the U.S. and went back to college. But then we regrouped in 2014 and and released a bunch of records since. And not so many shows anymore. You know, people have other obligations and careers. But the fire is still there, you know, it, it, it just doesn't go away. And uh, if it's not the Travoltas, then it's, it's always uh, some other song that needs to be written or mixed or, or recorded. What are the, the key things that you learned as a member of the Travoltas, whether it's personalities or business or travel? How has that impacted your recording world? What have you learned from the music world that you take into account when it comes to running a studio, running an audio business? Well, I think like like a lot of engineers or maybe like a lot of producers as well, you start off as a musician. And I learned a lot what it means to be in a band, what it means to have to work with other people on your ideas how to deal with critique, how to spend a ridiculous amount of time with, with a bunch of people in a van, in a very close space. How, how do you respond to that? You got to go through all these things to learn. You learn a lot about yourself too and, and about your temper and about your patience and stuff like that. On the creative side, it was just a gradual exploration of what I actually was able to do and, and if I could find my voice because I started out as a drummer, which is my natural instrument. But gradually I started singing and, and writing and playing a little bit guitar so I could write better songs. So that band pretty much gave me everything I needed to know at the end of the road, I, what I needed to know to be effective as a studio owner where I can actually help other artists to, to reach their goals and maybe, maybe push them to the next level. Because I know what it means to to be on tour and I know what it means to record songs that may do well live. Mm. You know, I, I understand that. And I think that's, especially in punk rock, where it's all about the live shows and connecting with, with the audience, that you need to understand how something should sound on a record so you can use it to your advantage live. And I think those are all things that I learned while I was in the Travoltas doing our thing. Yeah, a lot of important lessons that one can take from that experience for sure. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it makes you more empathetic to the artists that are coming in. And it's also, it could be an icebreaker too, to where you immediately can relate to the things that they've experienced and share a little bit of your own experience with them. And that, in some respects, I think almost gives an audio pro a leg up, an advantage, because they have that in common. And I think that there's a level of respect that other musicians, I think, have for those that have traveled the same path as, as them. Yeah, I, I agree. I, mean, I feel the same when I work with other people who've, who've been through that. Or, and it doesn't really have to be someone very successful. You know, if you did your part, if, if you plow through many years of being on the road or being in the studio or just a lifelong songwriter. I respect that immensely. And I think it's also a great advantage for, for younger artists who are just coming up to pass that on. I'm very grateful for what I've learned from all the people I've worked with, the engineers, the, even the, the sound guys on the road, studio owners, teachers, 
because that's how you learn best. You know, you learn from people who've been through it. And if you have an open mind and aren't a knucklehead, then you can pick <laughs> up a lot of things along the road. Now, what would your advice be to those who are producers or engineers who don't have that same experience on the road or being in a band or, or having that same experience? What can they do to really form that bond with a band that comes in? I think there's always something unique you can bring to the table. You can always, maybe you're a very good guitar player. Maybe you are a very good vocalist. Or maybe you're just very good with people. If you're very good with people, you also know how to show some empathy and how to level with people. Maybe you don't have that experience of like, oh, this guy's been on the road, uh, made a zillion records. He knows how to how to walk this road. But I don't think it's it's a necessary thing, but it's for sure it, it can help. Yeah. But there's always something that as an engineer, or as a producer that you can bring to the table. Because when you're not in the band, you're listening to everything in a very different way. And that can be beneficial to the band you're working with. Yeah. And, and just if you're in the audience listening and you're thinking, oh, I don't play an instrument or I do play an instrument, both scenarios can totally work. I mean, I'll give you two very different examples on either end of that spectrum, Rick Rubin and Steve Albini. Rick Rubin doesn't play an instrument. Steve Albini, hmm. of course, plays guitar and has been in bands, and he has that experience. Both have had great success and uh, are very talented in, in their own right. So it can be done. It doesn't matter. But I, I guess I identify with your experience being a drummer as well and having toured and, and played in bands and been in the van with <laughs> close quarters with people. When did you start to really take to recording and start to actually buy gear and make a move to be an audio professional in general? I think I bought my my first four track. I think everybody starts with that damn Tascam four track. I think I bought it in like the mid 90s, maybe like 96 or something. And it just opened up a whole world. Before that, I would just write things down and the next day it would sound different because I didn't record anything. So it was always like, I got to play this 500 times so it doesn't sound any different tomorrow and I'll still remember it. So when I had that four track machine, then I started to write more with an idea of a final product in my mind. Suddenly I was able to visualize arrangements in my head that I can then, and maybe in a, in a simple way, could record and then bring it to the band. Or I could stack some harmonies and start exploring harmonies or, or how that even works. You know, it's, it was really trial and error. It was just uh, trying out a lot of things and, and uh, making a lot of mistakes, knowing nothing about audio, knowing nothing about how to make something sound halfway decent, to the point where I finally started buying a computer and Cubase and a preamp and a, an SM7B. And that was really the start of a small studio setup that started to sound a little bit more like the way I had it in my head. And I would assume that you started out also recording your own band in the beginning. No, not really. Because we were always able to, to scrape together a budget, either in a collaboration with the label. So we would always go to a studio. And there I would just soak up everything that I saw, you know, what the engineer was doing, what he was using, what microphones, where he was placing them, what gear he was using, even the, the routing on the board. I, I was just like absorbing everything. And I started actually recording other people outside of my demos before I actually started recording my own band. That was much, much later when I, I felt confident enough, okay, now I can do this and do it with the Travoltas. Were the other band members hesitant to have you start doing the recording? No, not really, because we, I was always co-producing the record with our guitar player, Vincent. We were always doing this Travolta thing together. So we were always together in the studio producing. 
pretty much from the second or third record on, we were always producing the record. So we knew what we wanted. We just didn't know how to get there ourselves. And it was just a matter of learning and trying things out and buying gear up until the point where now I can do it myself. And when did you start taking on paid clients? I think that was uh, in the early 2000s when I started to produce. Uh, produced a couple of bands that we toured with, a couple of Dutch bands, and then I started to produce a band from, from Norway. We would fly up there, work in a studio there, and, and then and I'm bring it back home and mix it. That was around 2003, 2004, where I started getting paid for the, for the services. Yeah. And then was there a point at which you said, I have to have my own studio, my own building, my own workspace? And what was the journey like to get to that point? I think the main thing is like, I hate to take on debt. So for me, it, it took a very long time to actually have a legit recording space. I lived in an abandoned school building for a year, for example, which I lived there for free. But there were so many large classrooms that were perfect for recording. So I thought, why would I pay and rent for a room if I can do it here? I live here, so I can have the control room in this giant classroom and record anyone I want. So we recorded, I recorded some acoustic stuff there. We recorded a live album there uh, with an audience. The place was large enough to hold some people. And uh, I was living there with another musician at the time, and we were making music all day long. So that was pretty much the first incarnation of my own space. I lived there. I recorded there. We did everything there. And every day was music. It was a great time. It was stripped of any luxury. <laughs> we had warm water coming out of a hose. But we made some good music, and, and uh, we had a lot of fun. Wow. Okay, so... I've got a million questions about that. How did you find yourself living in an abandoned school building? So I lived in the U.S. for a couple of years. This was in the late 90s before we, went, uh, we moved to Boston. I lived in L.A. for a couple of years, did two records there, moved back. I didn't have any place to go. Didn't want to move back to my parents' place, of course. And a friend, my friend said, I live in an abandoned school building. They let me live there so the place doesn't get run down. Why don't you come here? We have power, we have internet, and we, we sort of had hot water. And I said, sure, count me in. And I moved in the next day, I brought in my gear, my, my, my drum kit, my guitars, and, and uh, I lived there for a little over a year, and it was just an awesome time. <laughs> and how big of a building was this? It was huge. It was huge. It was an old school building. And there were maybe, I don't know, 30 classrooms, and they all had large ceilings. There were some other artists living on the other side of the building. There was a guy who was fixing bikes, and there was a, a couple of painters living there. I don't know, really, to this day, I, I've never known how many people actually lived there. It was just a coming and going of eccentric, artistic people. And uh, it was a, an awesome place to live. Not forever, but certainly for a year and, and live through that and where you can dedicate every day to music is just amazing. Where was this school building located? This was in Eindhoven. This was in the south of Holland, a city in, um, in the south of Holland. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty wacky. <laughs> it is. Yeah, and, and if I wasn't living there, I, was, I would be on tour. So it was really a year without any stress or without any worries. I had no bills. All I had was music and a band. I didn't have a lot of money, but I didn't really need any money either. Yeah. Security-wise, I mean, everybody respected everybody's space. and Once in a while, we had to call the police to chase out someone who didn't belong there. But in general, it was, it was fine. We, we built, by then, we built up quite a reputation that, at least my friend did, that probably don't want to mess with. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was always hiding behind him, so I was safe. So having a place there to record, you stayed there for a year. So what what was the next progression of that? 
Well, in that year, I also met my wife. So that was still my girlfriend at the time. And I was already contemplating a return to the U.S. I quickly realized that I just want to go back to the States and, and maybe go back to college. Because at that time, like right before we went back, I decided to call it quits with the band because the shows became smaller and smaller. The budgets became smaller and smaller. It just became harder to maintain as a band and live off of being a musician. And in that period, I did some more producing. I gave up on the space. I rented an apartment. And, and anytime I needed a space to record, I would rent out a studio. And that would kind of keep me going throughout the years until we, our move to the U.S., which was around 2006. And tell me about your, your time in the U.S. as an audio pro. What, what did you learn? You were there for, in Boston for, what, 10 years? Yeah. First, I moved to Florida. I went back to college to get a degree in broadcast television and film. I really wanted to explore, because I went to art school while I was uh, in college in the Netherlands, while I still was in bands and doing the recording thing, I still went to college. So I, I always had that visual itch in terms of like artistic expression. And I really wanted to dive into video production and specifically broadcast. So I went back to college, spent two and a half years there. And I did an internship after like a month after my arrival, I did an internship at a NPR affiliate called WWF, where they offered me a job after a couple of months of, of the internship. So I, I was still in college, but I, I was very happy to take it. And basically I would do anything and, and learn about a lot of things too. I would direct broadcast shows. I would go out and shoot on location. And I would do a lot of audio work too, editing, running the audio for a live broadcast. Very, very different, of course, from studio work, but definitely very much related to what I was doing uh, before. And once that came to an end, we, we made the move to Boston and I started working for, uh, for a marketing firm where I would build up a, a, a video department for them. And at the same time, record with bands, write with bands, have a band in Boston and have, again, the Travoltas back in Holland. Did you enjoy your time in the U.S.? Yeah, I loved it. I miss it. I miss it so much that I think that in the long term we'll probably uh, return because uh, as much as I enjoy working here and, and living here, uh, Stockholm's an absolutely beautiful city, I really miss the U.S. I, I miss the mentality of anything is possible. And if you work really hard, you can always find your way. And I think uh, it's really true in the U.S. versus versus in Europe, it's. Uh, I don't want to make that comparison too much, but the mentality in Europe is is very different, and I I feel that in America in general, people really really pursue their dreams no matter what, and I like that drive. I miss that drive. I miss, I find that very inspiring to be surrounded by people who really have a goal and don't stop at anything and and just keep going. Because I'm like that, my wife's like that, and we kind of miss that here. So I think in the long term, we'll probably uh, be back. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. So you spend 10 years in the U.S. and then you go to Stockholm and you've got that drive naturally, but then you get the extra influence of being in the U.S. for 10 years. So when you land in Stockholm, did you find you had a lot of extra energy and, and focus that others did not? I think it's not a like a person-to-person situation. I think it's more of the attitude as a society. And mm. I, I saw that in the Netherlands as well. Maybe it has something to do with the welfare state because everything is pretty much taken care of, which is great. But it also kind of numbs you in a way in, in terms of ambition. You don't really have to, right? I can go home at five. Nobody's going to say anything. If I don't finish the job today, I'll, I'll finish it tomorrow. After living in the U.S. for quite a while, I'm, I wasn't used to that, and I also don't like it. If I do a job for, for an artist or any job, I want to do the best I can, and I want to deliver it on time because that's what I expect from other people as well. I find that normal for a business. And that all-or-nothing mentality is not really necessary in a lot of European countries. So mm. people don't tend to go there. And that's fine. You know, I grew up in Holland. It was a great place to grow up. I had everything I, I wanted. I didn't know any real struggles. But living in the U.S. really taught me that, sure, life is tougher. But if I really work hard and just keep learning and get better and better, things will pick up. And they, and they really did. And the same for my wife. So we, we have that natural drive. And I think culturally, the States is just a better fit. Hmm. It might not be for everyone, but the same counts for Europe, I think. And it's funny because the grass is always greener. I always watch you know, some <laughs> of these shows here in the US. Like We have this network called HGTV and my wife, we watch it all the time. People looking for houses, you know, they're right. moving from somewhere in the U.S. and they're like moving to, you know, Amsterdam or something. And we're always just like, that would be really cool. We should go live there for a little while and get out of here. <laughs> so it's I mean, interesting. For a little to, while, you could yeah. certainly try it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong. I mean, I can totally imagine like doing a corporate job for, for 20 years just wears you down. And maybe you don't end up where you think you should be at, at a certain point on the corporate ladder or, or in any job. I, I understand that a life in many European countries may be a little bit easier, but it's different for, for every person, I think. I, I think culturally for me uh, and for my family, the, the U.S. is a much better fit. That's, that's super fascinating to hear that perspective. It's good for me to hear it as, as a U.S. citizen, of course. Right. So tell me about running your studio in Stockholm. Tell me about that experience and the things you've learned and the good, the bad, and everything in between. Yeah, so I, I was looking for a place, and you can find a lot of places online. There's a lot of studios here. There's so much music being made here, and a lot of it is is very high quality. So there's a lot of cool professionals that have studios with multiple rooms that you can rent. But at that point, I was trying to buy a couple of preamps from this guy, and he said, well, come to my studio and uh, you can pick him up there. So I walk in and he was kind of moving out and he was packing up his stuff and there were cables everywhere. And I said, well, are you moving? Are you moving out? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm moving to another country. And uh, would you be interested in this studio? I said, yeah, for sure. Hmm. And a week later, I signed the lease and I've been uh, here uh, since. And this was two and a half years ago. So once I started doing projects here. I, it was really nice to go away from a home studio, go to a place where I don't get distracted by 
anything that can happen at home, kids, pets, wives, dishes, anything, <laughs> phones. And uh, here I can come in and work eight hours and get so much done and then go home and have a normal life with my family. One of the things that I learned here in Stockholm is that there's a lot of professional producers here. They really, really take care of their craft. They really take their time. They really make sure that everything is perfect before they send something out. Hmm. There's a couple of people working here in this building and they don't mix a song in a couple of hours. They mix a song maybe in a couple of days and make sure, you know, this has to be absolutely perfect because it eventually it will go on the radio or it will go out in the world and people are paying me for it. I like that attitude. Doesn't mean that I look forward to spend two, three days on a mix. Either I would be too expensive or I wouldn't make any money to pay the rent. <laughs> but uh, it tells a little bit about the professionalism of people in the music business here in, in Stockholm. And it's, it's, it's quite inspiring. So the building you're in, it sounds like there's other people. So is it a building dedicated to a bunch of little studios? Yeah, there are, there's one main room and three smaller rooms. I'm in, in Studio 4. I have access to the live room. I can book it whenever I want. Most of the people who work here do electronic music, so they don't really use the live room that much, which is great for me, of course, so I can leave up the drum kit if I need to. And yeah, there's we have a common area, so it's nice to come in in the morning and have a cup of coffee or join each other for lunch and just have a conversation uh, about anything. And that just gives it a little bit of an extra feel to being here. You know, like there's a, a personal relationship going on and I'm not secluded in, in a basement at home or something, which has it has its advantages as well, of course. But I like a little bit of interaction and that's how you also meet new people that you, you may be working with later. I really love that idea. So as you describe it, you pay your rent, but your You're right. your rent comes with access to a bigger live space. Correct. Yes, right out of the door. I have 24 channels going in and out. So I have everything hooked up and whenever I need to track drums or or maybe vocals or guitar, I, I just go on the Google Calendar and, and reserve the room and, and do my thing that day. It's great because I don't have to pay extra for it. It's there for me to use it. I don't have to go to another studio to track drums. The live room isn't insanely large, but drums sound great in it. You know, it doesn't break apart at, at a loud volume. So it's very cool to record here and be able to stay here and not have to run around town to do your drums here and do your guitars there and, and mix at home or mix in the studio. So you have tie lines from your studio to the live room? Correct. The live room is right here, right behind me. And then the other studios are on the other side. And they also have tie lines going in there. Only one. Only uh, the main room has tie lines. And actually the one next door has tie lines as well. So we have, of the four studios, there are three that have access. Wow. Are there any other businesses that are non-audio related that are in the building? They do some non-audio stuff, mostly video. Sometimes they use the, the live room for video recording. But it is, I, I would say it's about 90% is all music. Now, what happens if you say, I'm going to go on the Google Calendar and book two weeks straight of drum tracking? Does everybody else like flip out and go, hey, man, when am I going to get in there? Maybe, maybe not so much like when do I get in here, but more like two weeks of drums that you have to deal with might be a little bit much. I haven't been in a situation where I, I have to do that. I can't imagine that some people would be annoyed, but I'm sure we'll, we'll work it out. Maybe I can record at night or in the weekends. You know, this place is always accessible. It doesn't matter if you're here at night because there are businesses above this space, so they're gone at night. We can record 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So there's always a way around things. I've never had any issues and with booking the room or, or whenever I wanted to record. 
I'm getting a, a sense that there's a, is there a little bit of bleed between the live room and everybody yeah, else's rooms? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there okay. is. And <laughs> sometimes it happens there, like, like the other week, uh, the main room, they had a, they had a small jazz rock combo recording in the live room. And I had a little bit of bleed. I was mixing some stuff, but as soon as I turn on the mix, I, I barely hear it. Mm. And uh, it's a little bit of give and take. They tracked maybe for like three, four hours. It was fine. I checked the low end later when they're done. I'm pretty flexible with things. I'm, I'm grateful that I have this space. It's not super expensive. It sounds good. The people are nice. It's clean. It's cozy. So once in a while, I'll be happy to be flexible and not cause a shitstorm or something. <laughs> Is it hard to get in there to rent one of those rooms? Is it the, the well, turnover? Well, full now, but... There are complexes that are huge that have maybe like 20 rooms, but a lot of them don't have a live room. They may have a booth, but they don't have a live drum room. And this is one of the very few places that actually had a live room where multiple studios had access to. Hmm. I'm not sure how unique it is in general. Maybe I just got lucky. I like to think I, I just got lucky because I just came here to pick up a couple of preamps and I walked out with a with a studio contract. But yeah, I, it's been great, but I see a lot of studios with multiple rooms here. But yeah, like I said, a lot of them don't have access to a live room, so maybe I'm just lucky. Do you market yourself at all? I do more the studio than me personally as a as a mixing engineer or, or a recording engineer. Not really sure if that's the right thing to do, but I have a website. You know, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I try to post things that are interesting to musicians, maybe some other engineers from time to time. But I think it's necessary to be present because that's where everybody lives nowadays. So I, I don't have a problem with it. I don't mind doing it. I enjoy reading other people's journeys in audio uh, through Instagram and, and, and even LinkedIn. So I try to market it as a full service, as a recording and mixing service mastering if needed. But I think with a lot of studios, most of my clients are return clients or word of mouth clients that they heard something or they heard someone say something about me as, as, a, as a mixing engineer or they heard one of, one of my recordings or mixes and they want to work with me. Mm. That's usually how I get my new clients. Let's talk a little bit about money and business. How do you approach your finances as an audio professional? You know, I usually ask this question, are you a spender? Are you a saver? Are you constantly trying to upgrade your gear? I think I used to be a little bit. I think it was more because I didn't really know what I needed. And this, we're really talking about 15, 20 years ago, maybe. And things weren't as accessible as they are now. And you couldn't find that much info online either. I think nowadays, when I purchase something, even if it's a plugin, I really force myself, like, will this make my work better or will I make more money? And if the answer is no to one of these or both, then I likely won't buy it. I was very proud this, this Black Friday that I didn't buy a single thing, <laughs> not even a plugin, yeah. not even a Kemper profile, nothing, <laughs> because I don't, I don't need it. We all live on, on gear space. We all look at sweet water all day. I love it. I love gear, but I don't need everything under the sun. I would like to have some better preamps down the road, maybe a couple of nice ribbons, but right now I don't need them. So I don't like to take on debt. I don't like to buy anything on credit. If I know 100% sure, like, okay, I'm going to need this for this project for whatever reason then I may take out the credit card and, and purchase it. But otherwise, I won't. Because I think it's a little bit of a waste of time. I bought stuff that I never use. Mm. And I can't get rid of it. I don't want to give it away for free because I paid money for it. But, you know, it's old stuff. Nobody's interested in it. So I'm, I'm stuck with it. Never use it. I don't want a whole studio with stuff like that. So I'd rather have stuff that sounds great, that is of good quality, so it will last me a long time, and that I actually use. Hmm. And I don't really care much about 
the brand as long as it, uh, the quality is is good and it sounds really good. I love that philosophy. Yeah, I know. I know you've been mentioned it many times on your show, and I think it's it's sort of a a normal way of running a business. Like if it doesn't make you money or it, if it doesn't make your service better, then why invest in it? Yeah. It's nice to have, but nice to have is is nice for a hobby. This is this is not a hobby, you know. If I if I wanted a hobby, I would I would certainly choose something very cheap that doesn't cost thousands and thousands of dollars. And I think what some people may struggle with is what we do is it's part business, but it's also part artistry. And I think the artistic side of some of us struggles with the business side of us sometimes. And it's, you know, it's like the, the artist and the business, business person sitting on our shoulders telling us, you know, don't buy that. No, buy that. And I've done it. And it's not like I always am able to control myself, but I had to invest quite a, bit, a little bit in this place because I didn't have everything to be able to track 12, 14 mics on a drum kit while maybe uh, uh, some other people can play at the same time. I needed to invest in that because otherwise I cannot provide that service. Mm. But I still didn't go into debt because I did some projects, put some money aside, and by the time I had enough money to buy it, I bought it and then I provided the service. And that feels so good when you can buy something and not owe anything for it after the fact. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I just hate it when you get paid and it's a nice chunk of money and then you got to give it away and there it goes, you know? So that's something that you already have. The logic escapes me. I know sometimes it's necessary and sometimes you just need to invest to grow. I get that. I've done that myself too, but... To do that for every single piece of gear is just not a, a sensible way of running a business. I, I don't think it's sustainable. I want to come back to something you said about the welfare state. And you said everything is really provided for you. Can you give me a little comparison there? Because, I mean, you lived in the U.S. for 10 years. So right. I think this is mainly for my U.S. listeners, this conversation, because we all know what we what we have here, what we don't have here. And how certain things are dealt with in terms of healthcare and stuff like that. So in Sweden, can you tell me a little bit about taxes or healthcare or how that all works there? Yeah, I, th I think the best comparison is, is maybe Massachusetts. Like when I lived in Florida, very little is provided. Taxes are very low. So it comes down to your own responsibility. When you live in Massachusetts, taxes are high, but you get a lot of or more in return. Right. Let's, let's just call it that. Here in Sweden, there's a lot of taxes. Sales tax, for example, is 25%. So everything is pretty expensive. But that means that healthcare is free. Schools are free. College is free. Just many, many things are free. There's fantastic public transportation that is never late, not even a second. It's crazy. <laughs> it's clean. It's very safe. The water is very clean, tastes fantastic. The air is clean. So the state takes care of a lot of things for you and you pay your share. Okay. That said, it's very hard to, at the end of the month, have enough money to put aside because you pay a lot into taxes and you pay a lot into sales tax. So everything you buy is expensive. Now I've lived here, and, and the same situation is in the Netherlands and countries like Germany and Italy, where the state provides a lot and charge you a, a good amount of taxes. I think it's great, but it also creates that feeling of there is no urgency to do anything because I'm okay anyway. And right. it's great if you don't have too much of ambition. It's great if you are maybe ill or fragile, or just don't want to go and live a life and, and take a lot of risks. Now, in the U.S., of course, things are a little bit different, and I, I, I find it very different state per state. I, I lived in California for a couple of years, and I felt pretty okay there as well, and, and the same in Massachusetts. But maybe this comes down to like a political, philosophical way of thinking that I think there's also a responsibility of every individual to, like accidents happen, but 
everyone has a has to take their own responsibility for their life. So if it's not free for you, if healthcare is not free for you, but you don't pay a lot of taxes and you you don't have a lot of sales tax, you don't have a lot of income tax, then it's up to you to put something aside for when that day comes when you're going to have to dip into that and pay your medical bill. Doesn't mean that people need to go bankrupt. I'm completely against that, of course. That is immoral, but I also understand the idea of being responsible for your own life. And that's what I love about, and that's one of the reasons that I I became a U.S. citizen, because I think the individual pathway in the U.S. is way more up to yourself than it is in countries like the Netherlands and, and Sweden. And that has to do with a welfare state. So it's a huge plus to have everything covered. It's a huge plus, undeniable. But at the same time, the individual pathway is really, really in your hands in the U.S., I I believe so. Yeah. Very interesting. And cool that you have been able to live in the U.S., see how that works, live in Europe, see how that works. And I'm sure that the answer for you is maybe not 100% one thing or the other, but right, right. A, a kind of a combination of thoughts and ideas and methods. But it is an interesting thing when it comes to trying to make a living as an audio professional, because when you buy gear in, in Europe, like 25% sales tax, that's just like, <laughs> that's insane. It's, it's great if you have a business, because that's 25%. 25% less, right? But then you also have to charge people who are not businesses, artists that come in, 25% sales tax. That makes you also very expensive. Now, people in Sweden are used to that, but if I'm going to mix a record for a band from Australia, that is a different thing, you know? They don't have 25% sales tax, not that I'm aware of. So then I have the choice, do I adapt my prices or do I keep it as it is? Because I need to pay my bills here, mm-hmm. right? I have to deal with 25% sales tax and a huge number of, of, of income tax. So it has its pluses and it has its minuses. But I think in dealing with private individuals as a business and dealing with people outside of Sweden makes it a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Dealing internationally there. You said it, yeah. you know. Yeah, mixing something for somebody in Australia where they don't have, and not to the best of my knowledge either, do they have a 25% sales tax? But yeah, that's a factor. It's like your cost of living there is going to be vastly different from, you know, say somebody in Mexico City or right wherever you're, we're talking about. And I really believe that in the punk rock scene that I mostly operate in is not that big. And it's very international and everybody pretty much knows each other nowadays, right? So we all know where to go to for your mixes, for your mastering, for your recordings. There are a number of studios that are specialized in that. So in a way, I'm not saying that, I, that I'm competing with, with everyone, but in a way you are because if someone in the U.S. Has the, has the choice to work with me versus someone in the U.S. or someone in Australia, then... Price is a factor. And mm-hmm. how far do people want to go to to work with you versus someone that may be a little bit cheaper and can work a little bit longer on your on your project? So I have to take that in consideration when I work with bands abroad. And what I usually also do is I work for the currency that the client pays in, pays their general bills in. So I'm not going to charge them in Swedish crown and confuse the hell out of everyone. You know, if I work with an American band, I I charge in dollars. And if I work with a European band, I charge in euros and so on. Well, where can people find out more about you and the studio? So uh, my website is pointbreaksound.com. I am on Instagram as Point Break Sound, Facebook as well. I'm on LinkedIn under my own name. Yeah, I, I, I always love to talk to fellow engineers and musicians about our work. And that's why I'm, I say it again, I'm a big fan of your show and mm. what you're doing to the, for the community is, a, is a, just a fantastic service to, to hear all these people and not just the famous ones, but also the ones that, that are working in the trenches and the people that I, I can really identify with to see how they, how they manage uh, 
their work-life balance, their business, and their background is just very interesting. And there's always something to learn and, and obviously very inspiring. Well, thank you. I appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing your experience because I find it fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So, well, Perry, you take care and thank you so much again for your time. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Harry Lanehouse here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Really appreciate you stopping by and listening to episode after episode if you're binging. And uh, remember, if you have a guest suggestion, always go to the guest suggestion form at workingclassaudio.com. Remember, it is the fuel that runs the show, and it's very, very important. So if you stop by there, recommend somebody. I'd certainly appreciate it. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical Mr. Chuck Smith. Isn't that an incredible voice? Anyways, connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.